And um, I, I told the people that where our church was at right now with all the ministries that God is opening up for us, that it was really uh, vital to go through this book. Uh, the book of 1 Corinthians and the book of 2 Corinthians forms one of the great contrasts in the Bible for us. Uh, the church at Corinth was a church that had its struggles like all churches have and all churches have to grow through. And in 1 Corinthians, they're uh, really kind of in a, a spiritual mess as, as a bunch of spiritual babies. And we remember when we studied that book, we saw how each chapter Paul had to deal with them on an issue. I mean, they're arguing over the goofiest stuff you've ever seen in your life. And uh, they're messed up on just about every fundamental doctrine of the Bible. And by chapter by chapter, and sometimes multiple times within a chapter, he deals with issues that they're struggling with. And uh, so we came through that book, and then I told you that uh, the great contrasting book to that is 2 Corinthians. Someplace along the line, someplace along the line, the church at Corinth got, got it figured out. And uh, there was always an element in this church that didn't appreciate what Paul was trying to do and try to give them. But for the most part, the church began to get dialed in, so to speak, and, uh, and, and did what they needed to do. And that's when he wrote the book of 2 Corinthians. When he wrote the book of 2 Corinthians, he now forms for us a book that, like the first book, chapter by chapter, he had to straighten them out. Now, chapter by chapter, he teaches them the aspect of ministry. He really establishes this church uh, online to get into the ministry. And it forms a great book for us, a great book for us. And uh, you'll remember if you come down as we came through it, we've come through now 10 great chapters. And if you're concerned about ministry in your own life, which you should be if you're saved, and you want to do something for God, boy, this is the book to really begin to get it solidified in your life. Chapter 1, remember, we talked about the attitude of ministry. And the attitude of ministry is suffering with other people by the sufferings that you have went through yourself. Chapter 2 talked about the forgiving spirit of the ministry, how that we as ministers should hold nothing against anybody. And I say it all the time that if you come to this church or, or whatever, I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. I don't care if you've done anything against me. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. All that matters is where you're at and where you want to go from here. And that's the aspect of the forgiving spirit that, that the ministry has to have. Chapter 3, you remember, was dealing with the proof of your ministry. And we saw how that, uh, how do you prove that you're really saved and you're really uh, doing what God wants you to do? Well, we talked about it in that chapter. Chapter 4 talked about the uh, defining of your ministry. What really defines you and I as ministers of the gospel? Chapter 5, wow, remember we talked about that, the great chapter on our perspective of the ministry, the judgment seat of Christ, the fact that someday we're going to be held accountable for, for everything that we do. Chapter 6 was the fellowship of the ministry. And we talked about with that what we ought to be in fellowship with as believers. Chapter 7, one of the great chapters in the book talking about the promises of the ministry. We put a lot of emphasis on the promises of God here. We call them principles sometimes, but uh, they're, they're the promises that God gives us that gets us through the everyday things of life. Chapter 8 and 9, you remember, just a couple of months back, we talked about how those two chapters deal with the heart of the minister. And I told you why that there's two chapters that he deals with because the number one thing about your life and my life and our service for God is going to be the attitude of heart that we have toward the things that we do for God. Chapter 10 which was just last week, 
We talked about, our uh, last couple of weeks, we talked about the mindset of the ministry. The last week, I probably gave you one of the greatest lessons that you'll ever get for yourself, not because I preached it, but for the information for you, of how not to compare yourself with somebody else, how to be satisfied with who you are, how to realize that God made you just the way that he wanted to make you. He gave you things that he didn't give somebody else. He gave somebody else things he didn't give you. He gave different abilities to different people. And being satisfied with who you are and then taking what God has given you and develop that to reach other people was a great uh, lesson that all of, you, uh, needed to, all of us needed to hear. And then today we get into chapter 11. And in chapter 11, uh, we're going to deal with the wisdom of the ministry. You know, this, you hear me talk about a lot about the lowest common denominator. And what I mean by that is when you have a situation or a problem, Many times the answer to fix it hasn't been defined enough yet. You got to get it down where I call it the lowest common denominator, like taking two numbers and dividing it into themselves till you can't divide it anymore. When you get to the lowest common denominator in the Bible on anything, you've got all there is on it, and this is where you start. And uh, you know, you've heard me talk about that many times. Well, this chapter, really, to me, anyhow, is the lowest common denominator for ministry for it centers on the Word of God and the minister. And you can do everything that you want to do and all that you want to do for God, but the bottom line is, if you don't have the Word of God in your life and you don't understand how to use the Word of God within it, it's pretty much worthless at the end of the day. Now, this, this chapter talks about, in particular, the attack on the church. And I, every time I read this chapter, I, I'm reminded of a great story uh, back in 1 Kings chapter 13, verses 11 through 28. I call it, in fact, I have a sermon on it. I preached it many times. I don't think I ever preached it to you guys. Uh, somebody may have asked it in Bible study at one point or time, or it's been a while ago. But it's found in 1 Kings chapter 13, verses 11 through 28. I titled this sermon, There Dwelt an Old Prophet in Bethel. And it's a great story. I won't take the time to go back and read it, but you ought to read it uh, sometime today and, or this next week and just kind of glean out of some of the points that I'm going to make a reference to here today. But the story goes like this. There was a young man who God had called to do the ministry. And he's a young man that God gave the Word of God and gave him exactly what he wanted him to do. God told the young man, I want you to go here, I want you to do this, and this is what I want you to say and this is what I want you to do. Well, the young man had some great fruit in his ministry, and he's on his way to another place to do what God has told him to do. And again, God has given him specific instructions of how he's to do and what he's not to do. And yet, as he goes down the road, the scene kind of shifts over to one of the houses uh, outside of where uh, his great uh, ministry was going on, and a guy starts telling a, uh, an older guy about uh, this man of God and the great things that he did, and this old man sets out to find the young man. Finds him sitting under a tree, eating a peanut butter sandwich and drinking a bottle of water. I mean, he's just sitting down there eating his lunch. And he comes up and he says, are you the man of God who did all these great things? And he says, yes, I am. And he says, I want you to come back with me to my house, and I want you to eat with me and sit with me, and we can talk a while, and we'll just share some things about the Bible. The young man told him, no, I can't do that. Because the Lord had told me that I'm supposed to go down here and do this, and I'm not to stop, I'm not to go back, no offense, sir, but I'm not to come to your house, not to have anything to eat. Now, at that point in time, the old man says, well, you know, son, 
I'm a prophet too. And God revised what he told you and told me something different. And the Bible says in that verse, I think it's verse 18, when the old man said that, and the old man came down and said, now the old prophet told him God didn't, uh, didn't, uh, uh, didn't want him to do that, that God had spoken. In fact, he says, an angel, I mean, he got really into it. An angel came down and revised what God told you. And the Bible tells you in verse 18 that he lied to him. So that young kid goes back. And while he's sitting there eating and munchies and having pizza and all that stuff and having a great time, the Spirit of God comes down to that old prophet and he says, uh, and, and God just, uh, probably for the first time in his life, God spoke to that man and he rebuked that young man for disobeying the Word of God and clearly tells him, you have disobeyed what I've told you to do. And what happened was he let some older prophet interpret what God had told him to do and revise the Word of God that God had given him, and a kid wound up getting killed over it. And when God finally, and what happens is, if you go down through the story, I really love this, he starts to go off on his own, and a lion shows up. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says that your adversary, the devil, goeth about as a roaring what? Lion. Seeking who may devour. And a lion meets him in a road and kills him. And I've always thought a little bit later on when the old man comes back and he sees the boy dead, he's, and the Bible's clear about this. And this is a great picture in the Bible. These are great stories in the Bible. I, you say, how do you know that this thing, this thing is a picture of what's happening in churches today with young men today and young ladies today when the old prophets come in and tell you that God didn't know what he meant and what he said when he wrote what he wrote. And this guy got killed by the lion. And this old man comes out and hears about it, sees the carcass, and the lion is right there by the carcass, but the Bible clearly tells you that the lion had not devoured the carcass. Somebody says, is that important? You bet it is. That's a picture of a New Testament Christian. You see, the devil, as, a, as your adversary, as a roaring lion, going about seeking who he can what? Devour. devour. He couldn't devour this guy. You see, the devil can kill you, but he can't eat you. The devil could kill him, but he couldn't devour him because of the fact that this kid uh, was a picture of what you and I are. And I've looked at that story many, many times, and I've seen the examples of that many, many times. It's a great story. And God calls a young man to the ministry and gives him from his own mouth what he wants him to do, what he wants him to say, and then some older prophet comes in and says, that's not what God meant. Boy, I've seen him get killed spiritually in the ministry, just like this kid got killed physically. It's just that simple. Now, with these two chapters left that we have in this book, we start to see that this chapter, he begins to focus in on probably, I think, the most important issue in the ministry is the Word of God. Now, in a couple of months or so, or whenever we're finished with 2 Corinthians, we're going to start the book of Proverbs. And I've always been, I've never taught the book of Proverbs verse by verse. I've always wanted to and never have. It's a weighty book. It's a lengthy book. It could be a book we could be in until Jesus comes back. There's so much into it. But the book of Proverbs is about getting God's wisdom. And I didn't think about it at the time, but I think it's very fitting that after we finish what we're talking about in 2 Corinthians, we move into the book that tells you how to get God's wisdom. And certainly in doing ministry or anything in Christianity without God's wisdom is going to be a disaster. 
book of Proverbs tells you in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 2, that the book of Proverbs was given to us that we might know wisdom. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 3 says that the book was given us that we might receive the instruction of wisdom. Proverbs 2, 6 says that the, uh, the Lord giveth wisdom out of his mouth, just like he did this young man back here in uh, 1 Kings 13. Uh, Proverbs 3.13 says, Happy is the man who findeth wisdom. You want really the happiness of life? You really do? Then get the wisdom of God and operate by that wisdom. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7, one of my favorite verses, says that wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. That's an admonishment to you and to me, that wisdom is the principal thing. I love the word principle because I talk about Bible principles all the time. Wisdom of God is found in the biblical principles. I've told you before, when we all went to grade school and high school and junior high school or whatever, you had all your teachers, you had everybody, but you had one guy at the top, in some cases a lady at the top, who was the principal. And that principal was the person who everything went back to, and she was overseeing everything that you got a quality education and got the truth in education. And they called her a principal because she was the principal person and made sure you got educated. Well, principles in the Word of God are the principal thing that gives you the wisdom of God. But yet with all that, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says that fools despise wisdom and instruction. You know, if you just read the book of Proverbs and, and see the wise man versus the foolish man, uh, you'd think that that would or should make the world uh, a real simple to understand. I mean, just simply two kinds of people. You got a wise man, you got a foolish man. You got somebody who's saved, who's the wise man, somebody who's lost, who's the uh, foolish man. But yet, it isn't that simple, and it's, it's, it's somewhat complicated more than that. Because in Christianity also, I know we have... The Bible's talking about a, a wise man is a saved man who finds Christ, and a, a foolish man is someone who rejects Christ. I understand that fundamental concept. I also got to tell you, I've met a lot of God's people who are about as big of fools as you ever saw in your life. You see, so you find that concept coming into Christianity. And I'll tell you, nowhere do you see those two aspects of a wise and a foolish better than in the ministry. And I've been in the ministry a lot of years. I've seen a lot of things. I've experienced a lot of things. And I can tell you this, a Christian life without ministry is foolishness, and ministry without wisdom, God's wisdom, is also foolishness. So this is a great chapter. And now as chapter 4, verse 7 says, uh, the wisdom of God is simply, it's built on the principles of God. And that's why I put a lot of emphasis on the principles. Most of you, if not all of you, uh, have books that you have principles in. We're going through the people ministry right now. We meet next Saturday, and, and, uh, they're going, and what they're doing, and they're, they're putting their own syllabus together on principles that help them and give them everything they need to know about dealing with certain situations in life. The wisdom of God is simply built on the principles of God, and the principles of God are found in the Word of God. Last week, we talked about wisdom, and we talked about how that it develops in our lives as we grow in grace and faith and take uh, and let God take that and enlarge that. We talked about how that when you got saved, God gave you a measure of faith and a measure of grace. And then you develop that. And then as you develop that, you reach out to others. God enlarges you to others. By the Bible's definition, wisdom is nothing more than doing what God, we already have looked at many times, especially in chapter 10, of simply getting God's mind for everything in life. 
than doing what God saved us for, ministry, and God developing you uh, as you continue to grow and continue to go through. And we talked about all the stages of spiritual growth last week and all of that through the process of becoming just like the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a price of wisdom. <clears throat> Years ago, I heard this story. I've told you this story. It's been a while, but I love this story. I tell this story every chance I get. You call me up in the middle of the night and tell me and waste my time, I'm going to tell you this story just to bore you. <laughs> I love this story. Nothing I know illustrates what I'm trying to tell you today better than this story. Once upon a time, there was a kid who lived in a town, and uh, on the edge of town, up on a high hill, there was the wisest man uh, that, that, that anybody knew. And this man was a real genius. Everybody in town looked for him. His wisdom was so supreme, and everything that he, he wanted, and he said, came true. And everybody looked to him, and he was, the, he was the wisest man on earth as far as everybody would know. A little guy grew up in that town, and over the years he watched people coming in and, and uh, coming in there and uh, coming back and talking about the great wisdom and all the great things that this man had said, and he envied that. And this young kid had a, had a knack for learning, and he was really a sharp kid. And he wanted to be a great wise man. He knew that this man was going to die someday, and in his wildest hopes or aspirations, he thought maybe he could take his place someday. So one day when he was about, oh, I don't know, 18 or 19, maybe 20 years old, he went into the old man's house and knocked on the door, and the old man came out, and the young man began to explain to him. He says, you know what? I grew up watching all the things that you've done for people. You're the wisest man that ever lived, and you, you have all the knowledge that anybody could ever ask for. And he says, and, I, and I, I come to you. He says, I want you to teach me. I want you to train me. I want to become your little grasshopper, so to speak. You know, I, I want to become everything. You just take me and give me all your wisdom, and I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll, 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 I'll stay as long as you want. Well, the old man looked at him, and he said, well, he says, okay, he says, I know I'm getting older. He says, come back this afternoon. It's, it's, it's 11 o'clock now. Come back this afternoon about 3 o'clock, and, and uh, we'll start the process. Well, the little kid was elated. He ran home and told everybody he was going to become the wisest man like the old wise man. I mean, he was really excited about it. And, you know, he couldn't just wait. You know how you are when you can't wait for something. You know, 3 o'clock seems like it's three months away. Finally, he got there about 2.30, got there early, and he's waiting at 3 o'clock with the button. He knocked on the door, and the old man came out, and he, uh, there was a large uh, body of water there that he drew his water from and washed his clothes in, and the old man told this motion for this kid to come down. The old man <coughs> walked in. Another kid, he's thinking, <coughs> this is going to be some great ceremony. You know, this is some ceremony to make me a wise man. You know, I mean, this is really neat. He, you know, he wished his family was there and the, and the newspapers were there, but nobody. The old man takes him down and takes him into that thing. The old man gets out of the water right about here. And he's a little bit taller than the guy, so the, the young guy's right about here. And he's looking around, you know, and he, he's wondering, this is some kind of baptismal wisdom, here it comes service, or, you know, whatever. And about the time he looks up and he asks, they start to ask the old man. The old man, and he, the old man grabs his head and pushes him under the water. And this kid... He, you know, he, he didn't have any air in his lungs when he went down, and his mouth was wide open, so he got a mouthful of water. And he's choking to death down there. And the old man, the kid is squaring around. The old man is just 
holding on to him and holding him down and just, and the kid's kicking and, and I was going to say screaming, but you can't do that in the water. And he's holding him down there and all of a sudden after about a minute, you know, and the kid just about ready to die, the old man lets him come up to the surface. He, kid's just about gone. He drags him over to the beach. He lays him down on there and the kid's coughing and puking and picking up water and, and everything else, you know, and the old man just standing there like that. And the kid, once he regains his composure, he's infuriated. He thinks he's been duped. And he stands up and he starts screaming to this old man and he says, you know what? He says, you're not the wisest man in the world. He says, I came to you open and honest and wanted all the wisdom to try to help people. And, and this is what you do. You just about killed me. I don't see any wisdom in anything you just did, so I don't understand what this whole thing is about. And he went on for about 10 minutes. When he was done, the old man said, so you don't understand what this was all about and you want wisdom. Yes, I do. Well, son, here's how you get wisdom. When you want wisdom in your life, like you just wanted air when you thought you were drowning, that's when you'll get it. Wisdom comes with a price. Wisdom doesn't fall out of the wisdom tree. You don't just grow into wisdom. Wisdom comes with a price, and you have to be willing to pay it to the point that just like you want air, just like that drowning kid wanted a breath of air, the desire for wisdom is so burning inside your heart and your chest, and when you do, that's when you get wisdom. Now in chapter 11 here, now we can turn to chapter 11, we see a great story on the fundamental attack of the church today. It's really been an attack all down through history. I think you'll understand a little better today. And I think it'll help you uh, grasp uh, what we're going to say in the next couple of weeks. Uh, you've heard me talk about consistency in the Bible and how key that is to everything. And nowhere in the Bible uh, do you see that example of consistency better in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now let's read the first three verses here, and that's all the farther we'll go today, and then we'll start making some comments about it. But here's Paul's opening remarks to the church at Corinth. And now remember, he's concerned about them being deceived and being destroyed by the devil. Would to God you would bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I might present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, least by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity of that is in Christ. Now, I've said this a thousand times. God has a plan for each of you. I know many of you get sick of hearing it, but I'll not get sick of saying it. God has a plan for your life. He saved you for a reason. He saved you for a purpose. You may not be doing it. You may not be fulfilling it. You may have got yourself convinced in your mind that it isn't you. You're the exception to the rule, but I'm telling you, God has a plan for each of you, something he wants you to do. But also, just as God has a plan to use you, we must understand the devil has a plan to stop you. And that's what this chapter is really all about. The wisdom of the minister is to be able to see that. The wisdom of the minister, when you finally get it, is about you understanding 
what God has done in your life, the price that he paid for you, and then why he saved you, and then what he wants you to accomplish for him after he saved you. I mean, obviously, God could have just saved us and took us to heaven and, and spared us all this mess. He didn't. He didn't for a purpose and for a reason. And the quicker you figure that out, the quicker and the more wisdom you'll have of what God wants you to do. And then you understand that if it's that vital that God did what he did for you to save you, then you'll also see how vital it is on the devil's side to stop you. And he'll do everything he can to take you out. He'll do everything he can to make you ineffective. And as far as the devil and his plan, where, uh, the Bible says uh, that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, that we're not to be ignorant of his devices. Because when we're ignorant of his devices, then he gets the advantage over us. We are not fooled. As God's people, we, we're not taken in by him or his devices because of 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and the wisdom of the ministry and the minister. So this is a vital chapter. And that's not as easy as it sounds, as you're going to see. So we'll come today prayerfully. We'll ask God to open up this great chapter, and we'll ask God to give us the wisdom that we need to, to understand it. So let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we love you so very much. And we thank you, Father, for everything that you've done for us and everything that you've given to us. And Lord, I, I know these are good people. They've they, they got better things they could be doing today if they didn't want to find God and find out what God's Word says. So uh, they're, they're here, and they're good people. But yet, Lord, uh, you got to help us today. Because we know that the devil, uh, we, we don't want to be ignorant of his devices. And we know now uh, from this great chapter that the wisdom of the ministry settles on uh, the attack uh, to the church today. And I know the devil's attacked it all down through history, but never, never, never in the way that he's attacked it today. And help us to see that, help us to understand that, and help us, Lord, in all that we do to, to give you the honor and the glory and the praise. And Father, we'll be careful now to uh, just exalt you in this. And, uh, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. Now, today is going to be an intro to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If you would look in my Bible, you would see that on every chapter of the Bible, and there's 1,189 chapters in the Bible. If you would look at my Bible this morning, you would see that every chapter has a short introduction to the chapter. And uh, it's a short intro. Now, that helps me, like on Thursday night or when I'm just reading my Bible or when I'm coming through the Word of God, it helps me at a glance get a handle on each chapter. You hear me talk about context. I tell you that every book of the Bible has a context. Every chapter has a context. And yes, every verse has a context. But when you start to look at the chapters of the Bible, in my Bible, you'll find that almost every one of them will have a, an introduction of what that chapter basically is about. And I suggest that you do that, uh, too, at some point in your life. And, uh, and, and also, you'll notice that uh, before each chapter that we studied in 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians, what I did before we ever entered into that chapter is I gave you an introduction to that chapter. I gave you a baseline of material that could form in your mind a context that when we started to get into the chapter, we'd have something to build on. We just didn't jump in and start tearing things about. I, I, in my mind, I have to kind of understand something before I can really understand it, if that makes any sense to you. In other words, I'm giving it to you the same format that God gave it to me. I figure if it worked for me as stupid as I am, it ought to work for you. Because it's a thing where it, it, it just, it's, a, it's the basic way to approach it. 
Now, in this chapter, we see this chapter begin to lay out the work of the devil throughout the church age. And we see that Paul's got a real concern for this church. Remember now, he'd brought them through some deep thought, 1 Corinthians. Now he's got them online in ministry, but he's, he's, he's fearful. He's afraid that the devil is going to come in and corrupt this church. And we'll talk about that in the next couple of weeks, but today is our, our introduction. And you know, I, 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 this is just me. I would think if there was a clear chapter in the Bible, and there is, on the devil's attack on the church and Christians and the ministry, I would just think if, that was, if there was a clear chapter in the Bible, and 2 Corinthians 11 is that clear chapter, I would think that that would be on the hit parade of every pastor, every evangelist, every college, everybody on the planet to make sure that if you got nothing else right in your Christian education, you got that right. I would think that, I mean, let's say that somebody found out a bomb plot to blow up Kansas City. And don't you think that's important news to get out to people? Why, if you really had that information and it was true information in our scenario, you'd be calling Channel 9, Channel 4, Channel 5, you'd be calling the president, you'd be calling everybody. You'd tell everybody that there was a plot to destroy this city. Well, if 2 Corinthians chapter 11 reels there were a plot to destroy the church, how come pastors don't preach on it? How come Bible college? You know what? In any Bible college on this planet, when you get into Old Testament survey or New Testament survey or history of the Bible, I've never seen one course of the devil's work down through the history of the church. Not one. I'm a student of history. I love history. Church history is to me is the most amazing thing ever. Never in all of the books, and I've probably read 5,000 of them, and all the guys I heard, except maybe one or two, I've never heard anybody ever preach a message on the work of the devil in church history. Now, why is that? I mean, if, 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 if we have a clear chapter here that really lays it out, you see, there's the problem. Philip Schaff wrote, seven or eight volumes on church history. And that, that set of church history is held in esteem in every Bible college on this planet as the standard for church history. When Philip Schaff wrote church history on the history of the church in seven or eight volumes, you'd think the devil died. He didn't. I'm asked all the time, why are there so many churches today? Why are there so many people who believe different things today? Well, the first thing you see by the verses that we just read here, the first thing that Paul tells us in chapter 11, verse 14, is that the devil transforms himself into an angel of life. You see, if it was just, I mean, if it was just the devil was just bad and about sin and sinners and God was good and about saints and salvation, it'd be real easy. But it's not that easy. Once the devil crosses over and becomes religious, an angel of light, then some of those churches are obviously his churches. And if you don't, can't come to that conclusion, you're very naive. I wouldn't walk across the street, sweetheart. You might get hit with a bus. But it can get complicated. There's two great concepts that, in relation to this great chapter that I want to I talk about today. First of all, the Bible says in verse 14 that he's religious. 
He has a church. He has a Bible. It tells us that he has apostles. He has ministers. He's got the whole bottle of wax. Somebody said one time, I used to read in a newspaper where it said, on Sunday, go to the church of your choice. Don't ever do that. Don't ever go to the church of your choice. Go to the church that God chooses for you. Don't go to the church of your choice. Man, you can, that, you can get really messed up that way. The second thing we want to look at here, that is he is an imitator of Christ. He's a false Christ. He's called the Antichrist. Now, most people don't know what I'm about to say. And it shocks, shocks them to some time because they don't know very much about the Bible. But you know there's two Christs in the Bible? We think about the Lord Jesus Christ. We think about Christ. We talk about uh, God and, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ. But, you know, Christ is not a name. Christ is a title. And the word Christ comes from the word Christos, which means anointed. And there's two anointed ones in the Bible. There's two Christ in the Bible. And when you start to come through the Bible, you see that. In Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 14, the devil is called the anointed one. He's called the anointed cherub. He's a Christ. You're going to find that Christ is called God's anointed in Psalms 2, too. In fact, when you get into Revelation where it's swirling around and you can't really see all of the things and how it works, when it really swirls around and all of the things that it's going through, you know what he says? He calls, in Revelation eleven fifteen. he calls Jesus the Lord's Christ. He says in Revelation 12, 10, his Christ. He's making a difference between the two Christ. You say, man, that's confusing. I mean, boy, you know, if there's two Christ, how do you know which one? To... You see, we get the idea that the devil looks like, you know, wears a red union suit with a pitchfork and horns and a big tail and a cleft foot. Because that's how he's been betrayed all down through history. And he loves to be portrayed that way. But now you've got the defining chapter on him in the Bible that says, uh-uh, he transformed himself into the angel of light. And as, a, as an angel of light, you betcha he's got churches. You betcha he's got Bibles. You betcha he's got songs. You betcha he's got all of the things that, that the true church has. And he's a great imitator. And yeah, I'll tell you, you say, man, it can get confusing. Yes, without wisdom of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, it's totally confusing. Watch this. John 8, 12 says that God is light. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says the devil's light. Revelation 19, 16 says Christ is king. Job 41, 24 says the devil's king. Revelation chapter 21, Christ has a city and a bride. Revelation 17, 18, the devil's got a city and a bride. Christ is called a prince in Isaiah 9, 6. The devil's called a prince in John 14, 30. Jesus Christ is called the lion of the tribe of Judah, Revelation 5, 5. And I already gave you the verse on the devil in 1 Peter 5, 8. He's called a lion. Christ had apostles, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, so does the devil. Christ has ministers, so does the devil. They both quote scriptures. Look at Genesis chapter 3. They both do ministry. In fact, when you go to the book of Revelation, <coughs> there's two white horse riders in Revelation. You know that? One in Revelation 6 and one in Revelation 11. You go to every Bible college on this planet and every commentary you get your hands on, except maybe one or two, and they'll tell you that the white horse rider in Revelation chapter 6 is the Lord Jesus Christ coming back at the second coming of Christ. He's not the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's so close to it that the Bible scholars who cannot believe the Bible make the devil Christ coming back 
when the real Christ comes back in Revelation chapter 19. He's an imitator. So when the devil wants to destroy Christianity, he just follows that old axiom. If you can't beat them, join them. And boy, he does. He does. So, somebody said, I, I, know, I know somebody saying, man, this is confusing. Only one, you know, there's only one way to tell the real Lord's Christ from the anti-false Christ, and that's the book that God gave you. And that's what the attack is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You'll see that in the weeks to come. And God's people without the wisdom of God can never discern him or stop him in the New Testament. And uh, it, it, it just comes to a standstill. So great is, and masterful is his plan of deception that 98% of the churches, pastors, Christians, fall right into the trap. Let me show you how it works. This is an introduction today. Some things you need to learn before we get into this chapter next week. We've taken our time, and every chapter we've talked about some great practical stuff that really helps you. But all of that is worthless if you can't mark him for where he is and who he is and where he's at. Now, I want you to turn back to the book of Job for a moment, and I want to show you how it works. Now, you say, why the book of Job? Well, if you know anything about your Bible, you know that Job is a book also where the devil attacks somebody. Well, that'd be a good place to start, don't you think? I mean, if we want to find how the devil attacked this guy over, going to attack the church in 2 Corinthians 11, let's go back and see the other place where he attacked. Now, you have two great chapters here. And these are the two greatest chapters in all of the Old Testament on the devil and the work of Satan. And it's Job chapter 40 and Job chapter 41. Just for your notes, the greatest two chapters in the New Testament on the devil will be Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 13. Now, so great and devastating is these two chapters in the Old Testament of the devil's work that they had to get some help. He had to enlist the help of some cohorts. He had to get some educated scholars, some pastors, and a lot of Christians to work with him on this because if you don't get anything out of this morning other than one thing, it'll be worth your trip this morning, and that is why the devil hates this book. He hates this book because there's no book on this planet that reveals who he is and how he operates more than this book. And when you come to Job chapter 40 and Job chapter 41, you're getting right down where he lives. And so great and devastating is this chapter to his work and his deception that he had to enlist the help of some cohorts to explain away this chapter. Now look down here in, 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 uh, in chapter 40 and look at verse 15. We're not going to take time to read it, but there's two creatures in these two chapters. Oh, we've got to see these creatures. And uh, the first one is in chapter 40, verse 15, and it's called a behemoth. Now, a behemoth is a composite monster. A, a behemoth is, uh, is uh, uh, and you'll find in Revelation chapter uh, 11, uh, Revelation chapter 13, you'll find the Antichrist is a composite. It's made up of three different beasts. And then in chapter 41, 1, you'll find the word Leviathan. Now, Leviathan, if you want to run it through the Bible, you'll find in Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1, Job 26, 13 tells you he has seven heads, and Revelation chapter 12 and 13 finally defines who he is. Now, I'll just save you the trip. 
Job chapter 40 and Job chapter 41 are dealing with, those two creatures are dealing with Satan. The behemoth deals with the Antichrist, and the uh, uh, Leviathan deals with the devil. And yet there's not one commentary, not one Bible college, maybe other than one or two. I've only read two commentaries in all the 45 years that ever got it straight. Uh, and almost every pastor in this city will, tell you, will, will, will take these two, and they couldn't define these two and lay out the chapter. I've never seen it in 40-plus years of ministry. Now, these, this chapter will, uh, 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 these chapters reveal every aspect of the devil and his work. Now, let me show you how he masked himself. Let me show you how his cohorts try to help him. Say people. Well, I use the word loosely. When the Bible college, when the Bible scholars, when all your new Bibles, and even some of your King James Bible in the footnotes, when they come to the behemoth of chapter 40, verse 15, they'll tell you that it's an elephant. This is the value of scholarly education. They'll tell you the behemoth is an elephant. And then when you come on down here in chapter 41, verse 41, and you deal with Leviathan, in your little footnotes down at the bottom, or in whatever they teach the book, or however you want to get it, they'll tell you the Leviathan here is a whale, a whirlpool, or a crocodile. I love multiple choice questions. But it's either a, a whale, a whirlpool, or a crocodile. Now, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. But when I read down through that chapter, somebody who's way educated beyond me tells me that the behemoth is an elephant and the leviathan is a whale or a whirlpool or a crocodile, and yet I read down through the rest of the chapter of 41 and, and 40, and I find that this whale, this whirlpool, this elephant, or this crocodile, in verse 3, will speak soft words to you and make supplications. <laughs> verse 4 says that this whale, this whirlpool, this elephant, this crocodile, will make a covenant with you. Verse 5 says that with this whale, this whirlpool, this elephant, this crocodile, he'll, you can play with him. You know, I guess he rolls over and you rub his tummy and his little legs go crazy. I don't know. <laughs> Verse 6 says that this whale, this whirlpool, this elephant, this crocodile, you can take him to a banquet. And when that doesn't all in chapter 40, verse 19, with behemoth that tells you in verse 19 that he's the chief of the ways of God. That's some pet elephant you got there, doctor. Nice whale. Even nicer whirlpool. When I was in the Army one time, I got sick. I had really bad strep throat, and they put me in the hospital. This was at Fort Devens, Massachusetts. And I was bored, and I was feeling pretty good, and I was moving around one day, and it was a beautiful spring. I think it was May or April, real nice outside. Uh, and I was walking around, and I kind of, I must have strayed from the, from the general population over into the crazy psych ward area. I don't know where I was. I just wanted to go for a walk. And I'm, you know, I'm bored. I've been laying in bed for three days, you know. So I, I, I walking around over there and I'm looking out the window and watching everything, you know, it's pretty. And I watch this guy you know, come down the deal. He's, he's walking like this. And I'm thinking to myself, could we had a lot of guys come back from Vietnam that had been wounded. And I thought, well, he's probably wounded, you know, probably hurt, probably got his arm in a cast up there. You, you know, I've seen him out like this and like that. And so he comes over and he's walking down the thing. And I said, hey, how you doing, buddy? And he says, doing fine. I said, beautiful day, isn't it? He said, yep. Big guy. I said, uh, what happened to your arm? He looks down at me and he says, can't you see my pet elephant? 
I said, yeah, that's a nice one. <clears throat> Back to my ward, man. <clears throat> he thought he had an elephant on a rope. He didn't have nothing on the rope. Bible scholars think this is an elephant. It ain't an elephant. It's the devil. Some pet elephants you got, man. Hey, listen, you miss Job 40 and 41, and brother, you're as done as a forgotten steak on a hot grill. I mean, you going nowhere. This thing is masterful in how it lays itself out. Now, this is an intro, and in all this intro, remember, Job, Satan's attack on Job, 1 Corinthians 11, Satan's attack on the church. There's two key verses here that directly relate to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 on the wisdom of the ministry and working uh, and the workings of Satan in the church age. And this is Paul's concern. Once you miss these two chapters, you're dead. You're done. Once you miss these two chapters and you make this something other than what it is, then you'll never see through the rest of the chapter what I classify the two greatest verses in the Bible on revealing the work of Satan. And this is what Paul was worried about. And I'm telling you, when we get into this chapter, this is what happened. Chapter, uh, look at Job chapter 41, verse 13. Just a simple verse. It says, who can discover the face of his garment? That's a powerful verse. Martin Luther couldn't. Now, he was one of the greatest preachers that ever walked the planet. He couldn't figure it out. Very few men down through history have ever figured out that verse, who can discover the face of his garment. And the key is you recognize the face, his face, the devil's face, by the garment he wears down through history. The devil, not the elephant. Keep it straight. Now, that's why if you take it one step further, Many unbiblical churches always put the emphasis on how they dress. You ever notice that? The robes, the religious garments, the hats. Uh, you can recognize them at a distance by the clothes, by the garments, is the face of what they believe. And that goes back, if you go back to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, when you find the first garments that Lucifer had before he fell and became Satan. It all ties back together. Now, with that, this is why you find some saved unbiblical churches do the same thing. They try to put in legalistic dress clothes, codes. The women can't wear slacks. Guys have to wear shirts and ties. You know, they think that wearing clothes and all those things make you spiritual and make you holy, and it doesn't. Now, I understand there has to be a, a, a standard of dress, and I, I just take it, I know you can't legislate morals, and you can't put in dress codes, and, and uh, you can't you know, keep rules to keep people spiritual. You can't. And I just take it from the position that if you know what, in the morning when you dress to please the Lord and you put him first in honor and glory in your life, whatever you got on will be fine. I make it a heart matter. But the garments of the devil and the changing of those garments down through history are key. Now, I'm a student of history. I was thinking the other day, I was driving down, coming home someplace, and I was thinking of all the things in life that, I'm not very good at. Uh, and there's a lot of things. I mean, I, I stopped to think about it. I kind of got depressed for a minute, and then I, I thought, well, no, I, I won't get depressed about that. But I was, I was driving down the road, and I was walking over here and watching two guys with a hood up working on their car. And I thought to myself, I couldn't work on my car if my life depended on it. I mean, my lawnmower stops, I'm ready to sell the sucker. In fact, you know what I do? I just got a guy down the street who gets old lawnmowers and fixes them up, and I buy them for $40, and every two years I buy a new one, a used one. 
And I take them down to him. It doesn't work, you fix it. I can't fix it. And some of you guys look at a lawnmower and think it's the simplest thing in the world. Not me. Too many buttons on it. I've always envied the guys that when a star stopped, they just opened a hood and could start it with a screwdriver. I think that's wonderful. That's amazing. Stick it down there and put that thing in, and I love it. Try it now, and it starts. I tried it one time, burned that sucker right in half. I touched the wrong thing. I used to play the trumpet. People think I was a very good trumpet player. I know better. I wasn't that good of a trumpet player. I just was good enough to get by. And I, I sounded okay, but I, and I had some okay technique, but I wasn't a, I wasn't a, 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 a great trumpet player by any stretch of the imagination. I never applied myself, never did. I could look back in life and I thought to myself, you know what? I can't do anything well. I mean, uh, if, you, if we go to a restaurant and you choke on a piece of meat, I can't do that thing that pops it out of your mouth. <laughs> what do they call that? I yeah, I can't do that m maneuver. I just, I don't know what I'd do. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I watch, I watch you people who, you know, you, 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 if somebody had a heart attack, you know what to do. I, some people, somebody, somebody gets cut, you know what to do. I just put a tourniquet on it, you know. Somebody gets snake bit, you know, you know what to do. But I'm not good at that kind of stuff. All my life, I've, I've been a failure at a lot of things. I mean, people don't know it because I can pretend I know what I'm talking about, but I really don't. I mean, I, I, I mean, I've faked my way through a lot of life. I got the best job I ever had because the, my, the guy says, could you ever drive one of these before? I had never been on one before. And I said, but I've watched the people do it. I said, yeah, I drove before. I can drove those before. Good. good. And I, he put me on, and I just faked it through. And after the first day, he come up, and he said, you know what? You got the job. I didn't know what I was doing. I had to sit there for 15 minutes watching the other guys how to even start it. There's only one thing I've ever been good at. It's the Bible. I got depressed for a little bit about it the other day. I mean, uh, I, I, I can't fish. I envy you guys. You guys go back and show the big stringers of fish that you got. We want to go fishing. We, we want to learn how to fish. I don't I, you know. I, my way, I'm not, fishing. I mean, you, you sit out there. I do the same thing you do. I catch nothing. My way of fishing hand grenade, throw that sucker in, you get all you want. Man. I'm not good at that. I've never really been good at hunting. You know, you walk through the field and a rabbit runs out and you can shoot him. Wow. Give me a pair of shorts and a safari hat. Give me a break. Some of you guys get out there, you know, and you walking through a thing and you say, there's, there's deer all through here. Really? Where? You look at the rubbings, you look at the scrapings, you look at this, you look at that, you look where they've been pawing the leaves. Same way with the turkeys. I was with a guy one time, and he told me that, that turkeys scratch piles when they're looking for food in the leaves. So I'm out here, I see a bunch of pile scrapings. And I said, hey, there's a bunch of turkeys here. He said, no, they're deer. Now, how do you know that? You got a little deer camera up here someplace? He leave a little deer card. I'm a little deer. I'm just scratching this place. How do you know those things? I don't know any of that stuff. If I went deer hunting, I'd be out there for months. I'd just take a couple different guns. I could stay for squirrel season, duck season, and right around again. It amazes me. I don't know those things. There's only one thing that I'm good at, history in the Bible. That's all I know. That's all I've ever known. And, I, you know, I get down in my mouth about it. I get depressed a little bit, you know. No, I don't get depressed, but I, I get thinking about it. And I say, man, I, I, what, what? but then I think, what do I care? You think of the judgment of Christ, you're being able to hunt deer or turkey or ducks is going to cut at anything? You think how many bigger, you, when you get a judgment you're going to hold up a string or a fish and God's going to say, oh, you're in, man. Give me a break. 
I'm a student of history. That's all I know. And when I see this thing, boy, and I see these seven, uh, when he, these gar- he says, who shall discover the face of their garments? Coming down through history and coming to the bottom, you know what I found? I found seven garment changes. I found seven places in history where he changed the garments. You leave these seven places, you got it down. When I'm done today, you'll see why he wants to be an alligator, a crocodile, an elephant, a whirlpool, anything but what it is. Because these things lay it out. Life on planet Earth is not much different from the high school plays or drama departments we used to put on, remember? In my day, it was Sound of Music. It was Our Town. And you know how they did a play uh, in your high school? Probably still do. You know, you got the stage you got to work with, and you got the people who make the scenery sets, and you have a scene, and the oh, curtain opens up, and the scene's there, and they're doing a scene, and they'll talk for a while, and then the curtain will close. And then when the curtain closes, the guys come out, they rearrange the scene, the people change their clothes, they get this and that, open back up again, scene two, okay? And when scene two's done, they close the curtain, they do it all around again, change clothes again, scene three. And it'll go through the whole play that way, because they can't make it like a movie. Well, that's the way history is. If you will just... See the seven garment changes through history. If you just see how you can discover the face of his garment, and when he changes clothes, you got him. You got him. Act one, Genesis from Genesis to Second Chronicles. That's Act One. And the garment he wore at that particular time was the garment of Baal and Baal worship. Baal worship comes on the scene. Baal worship is a, is a huge thing. When God calls out his first people group, the nation of Israel, he wears a religious garment. Act 2, we'll pick it up at the end of 2 Chronicles, around 606 B.C., and bring us up to the first coming of Christ. This act is called the times of the Gentiles. Now he changes garment, and now he puts on, takes off the religious garment, he puts on a political garment. Now he runs the world through the kings. That's called time of the Gentiles. World now run by Gentile nations. Curtain closes. Opens up again, Acts 3, first coming of Christ. This will be about 4 B.C. up to about 33, maybe 50, 80, maybe in the end of the New Testament, I don't know. First coming of Christ. And this garment changed in history now is the garment of a Roman emperor. Now he's a god, you see, worshipped by all the world. And this is, this is, without a doubt, this is the key point in history. Because from this point on, it is birth. Whether the devil doesn't like this, but from this point on, all time is dated from this point. Before this time, now somebody come up and said, well, we'll call it B.C., before Christ. He's the center point. After, we'll call it A.D., and a lot of people think that means after death. It doesn't. It means, it's Latin. It means in the year of our Lord. You know what happened at the first coming of Christ when the devil changed and, and, and changed his clothes this time and this act? You know what happened? God set the precedent in time that all time going back was going to be in relationship to his son and all time going forward was going to be a relationship not to just his son but the year of our Lord. You know what that means? That means that any year could be the year he comes back. Oh, yeah, boy. That was some, that was some act there. And here he, puts on the, here he puts on the garment of a Roman emperor. Now we've come, see, we try to get rid of that. Devil hates Christ. He hates the book. Do you know what he's done now? They did away with B.C. and A.D. 
Now it's BCE, see, before Common Era. Now it's New Testament, or before is BP, present, before present, from 1950 on. See how they get around it? And nobody does that anymore. And nobody on this planet, only an egghead gets up and talks that way. Every common guy on this planet will use B.C. and A.D. because it goes right back to the book and right back to the Lord. Act 4, curtain closed. Act 4. Act 4 began the church age. It'll be around 90 A.D. up to, oh, I don't know, 1500 somewhere up there. This one. And now he wears the garment of a Roman Catholic pope. Now we've seen a great changeover from pagan Rome to papal Rome under Constantine. He changed garments again. And now the establishment of God's second people, the church, we see it begin to develop. And we see the devil begin to work that. And then the curtain closes. And Acts 5 opens up. And when Acts 5 opens up, it'll be around 1500, 1800. And now it's the Reformation. Oh, the, the church gets its back broke, the devil's church. Oh, it all goes sideways. And now we see the greatest period of time in church history, the Philadelphian church age, where the Word of God goes around the world four or five times. And now he changes the garments again. And now he puts on the garments of the CIA. Oh, yeah. The Jesuits. Oh, yeah. The Oxford Movement. The Oxford Movement was a secret organization that Roman Catholic Jesuits went into Protestant seminaries and took the classes, graduated as Protestant pastors, and they went into Protestant churches to bring them all back to Rome. That's why Europe's the way it's at today. That's why all those churches that came out of the Reformation is dead as a doornail today. You know why? CIA, Jesuits, the Oxford movement. He changed clothes again, and then it, it closed. Curtain went down, opened up Act 6. Act 6 will bring us up to about 1888 to 1948. We'll call this one the Zionist movement. This is where Israel becomes a nation again. This is where we see the development of Israel coming along. And now we change garments yet again, and now he puts on a, the Muslim garment. Did it ever bother you that up through 1700, 1800, 1900, all the way up to 1948, this world had Muslims all over the place and not one of them ever gave us a problem? You don't read in history of any terrorist attacks. You don't read in history of, oh, they have squabbles among themselves. But I mean France, I mean England, I mean Germany. They had places all over the Muslim world, and they coexisted. And they may have had a few little rivals, but no great terrorism. No worldwide, we hate this, we hate that. Why did it happen now? Because of a garment change, that's why. People are too stupid to see it. Or oh, that nation of Israel became a nation in 1948 in May. The whole, he changed the garments one last time. And now he put on the Muslim attire. Now he hates the nation of Israel. He hates anybody that's with Israel. Because he knows he's coming close to the end. Curtain closed. Opens up for the final act, Acts chapter 7. This will be from the end of 1950 up to where we're at today, the end of the Laodicean church period and into the rapture, the tribulation, and the second coming of Christ. Now he wears the garments of a religious, saved, born-again Christian. That's why you find a lot of Catholics when you try to witness to them, they say, oh, I've been saved. I've trusted Christ my own personal Savior. I hear it all the time from some of you people who talk to them. You see, these are the garment changes. <clears throat> these are the garment changes. These is what, this is what he did down through history.
and our ability, our ability to grasp and understand all that is, it is here and, and, and what you get from this book. When you don't let the devil take it from you, you make it your final authority and everything. You get wisdom, which is the principal thing. And this is what Paul's telling that church. He says, I'm, I'm worried that the devil is going to corrupt you from the simplicity that's in Christ. Boy, he did. He did. We'll see it in the next couple of weeks. Now, along with that, in conjunction with our study on wisdom of the ministry and the attack of Satan against the church, you get another great verse, and this will be number two. This is found in Job chapter 41, verse 12. And God says about the, this crocodile three things. This elephant has taken on great dimensions now. <clears throat> He's talking about the devil, and he says three things that you need to know. Verse 12, Job chapter 41, 12. I will not conceal. God telling you now. I will not conceal. I will not conceal. God says, I'm not going to conceal this about him. And the devil works doubly hard to conceal it. And God says, I'm not going to conceal it. And yet the only way God can reveal it is through a book. And when the devil changes the book and takes the book and gets the scholars to help him, making this an elephant, a crocodile, a whale, well, you see what the problem is. He says, I will not conceal his parts, number one, nor his power, number two, nor his comely proportion. Now, this is why the devil hates the Bible. It reveals everything about him. Job chapter 40 and Job chapter 41 are two of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible on revealing the work, the power of Satan and how he operates. We didn't even touch 40 and 41 with all of the different things it says about him, and you could take every one of those and define them and lay them out. We're just touching the surface. I just want you to see as an introduction what Paul's worried about with these people. Now, this is why, because I said, the devil hates the Bible. It reveals everything about him. There's more information in the Bible and the devil than any other man outside the Lord Jesus Christ. It's basically the story of two Christs, the Lord's Christ, the Antichrist. They're both anointed. They're both Christos. They both are anointed. So the devil goes to work to get rid of the one book that completely exposes him, and then he has a, my goodness, a free hand in all of Christianity. By making the behemoth of chapter 40 and Leviathan of chapter 41 an elephant, crocodile, whale, or whirlpool, you have, uh, you have to be totally ignorant of the Word of God. You have to completely deny what's said in the rest of those chapters. You talk to uh, scholarship, uh, you take scholarship over the clear verses of these two chapters, it only shows uh, that you've been deceived and have rejected the book that God gave you uh, over education. Now let's look at these three things he says here. God said he won't keep these from you. The first thing he says is parts. I will not conceal his parts. Now those are the men down through history that the devil uses. Devil's got a plan, but he's got to have some men help him with that plan because he can't do the plan by himself. So when the men help him with this plan, these men become the parts of that plan. And if you know your Bible at all, you come down through there, you know in the, in the Old Testament there's 18 principal men who the Bible gives designated as men who are connected in every sense of the way with him. After 90 AD, when you get past the New Testament, you'll find six key men in history. But they're just the tip of the iceberg. 
you'll find hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who will, these men put into motion, who they'll take the position that Christ is not coming back. They'll take the position that the Bible's wrong. They'll take the position, and they're part of the devil's plan. These 24 men, the 18 from the Old Testament, the 6 in the New Testament, set the stage for billions of people who hate God and hate that book today. They set the mode and model for the liberal movement today. They set the mode and model for the social gospel today. They set the mode and the model for everything that goes against Christianity and churches that you see. Gay marriage, same-sex marriage, anything you find, it goes back and starts here, and it corrupts the, word, it corrupts the church as it comes through. So parts, then the next thing he says here, I will not conceal his power. Now the power will be the nations that are his that he uses. And they're also listed for you in the Bible. See, the Bible is the greatest book on the world on history. The Bible is the greatest single book on this planet that it reveals the true source of history. Everything history you get is a Gentile perspective on history. You get everything you get in college or high school. You'll get nothing about the nation of Israel. You get nothing about uh, what God did with the Jews. You get nothing about any of that. All you get is a Gentile perspective of history. And we know that Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 says that Gentiles become wise in their own conceits. They get to the point where they think that they're all about history. History's about us. It's all about what we do. Every country makes this mistake. America has made that mistake right now. She tries to stick her nose into every country around this planet to give them freedom and democracy, and she spends millions and billions of dollars and millions and hundreds of thousands of young men's lives for nations that when you go and you leave, they go right back to what they were. You know why? They don't want what you got. They don't want what you got. They don't want what you got. They want what they want. But you see, we think we got this mindset. We are definitely wise in our own conceits. So what we have, everybody else has to have that. And we'll kill you if you don't take it. Doesn't work that way. The Bible is the greatest history book on this planet. It shows you that all the Gentile nations, when Christ comes back, are like a drop in a bucket. So only one nation he's concerned about. Only one nation he cares about. And that's the nation of Israel. There's only one church he cares about. Only one. And that's the true church of Jesus Christ. It isn't the Baptist church. It isn't the Methodist church. It isn't the Catholic church. It isn't the Mormon church. It's the true church of believers that were baptized in, in by his spirit into one body. That's the true church. That's all he cares about. You. You and his nation of Israel. So the, God says, I won't conceal his power. That's the nations. That's the nations that he uses. And as I said, the Bible lists them. In Daniel 2, you find Egypt, you find Babylon, you find Assyria, you find Persia, you find Greece, and then it goes to Rome. Then you go to Daniel 7, and oh, believe it or not, then you find England, then you find Russia, and then you find a good USA. All the way through the Bible, the Old Testament, uh, it lays out those nations. Those are the nations that when the times of the Gentiles come in, that he has his power through. He realizes that Baal worship can't get it anymore. Now he's got to have nations because nations have armies. Nations have money. Nations have people. And that's why he had so many nations in Europe built into their nation when they started their country that when you were born into this country, you didn't have the freedom of choice to be a Baptist, a Methodist, or a Presbyterian, or a Catholic. You were born with a religion. 
He's pretty smart. He's pretty smart. These nations, along with parts, the men, forged the world toward, or I should say against, the second coming of Christ. That's why every nation on this planet today, with the forsaking of two, are against the nation of Israel. That's why when you go to Washington and Congress opens up their uh, session with prayer and they'll have some guy come in and pray, some pastor, he has to submit his prayer for approval. Imagine submitting your prayer for approval to a human man to God. And in that prayer, you cannot mention Jesus Christ. Now, we're a Christian nation. The one who died for us on the cross, we can't mention. And you can't have a nativity scene at Christmas in school. You can't have the Ten Commandments. Uh, when our whole government and our whole world is built up on a J.O. Christianity concept, you can't do that now? <laughs> oh, man. I hate the time I'm living in. I told you, I'd rather be living back in the 1700s or 1800s. But I'll tell you what, the only downside or the good side of that is we can all get a front row seat to the end of the world, and I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> so he says, I will not conceal his parts nor his power, and I will not seal his, conceal his comely proportion. Now, comely is a, is a word that uh, means handsome. It means graceful, beautiful displays great quality. And where the parts will be the people, the power will be the nations. The comely, his comely proportion will be his religion when he transforms himself into an angel of life. It'll be a false church with all the beautiful services and all the beautiful buildings, with all the great songs, with all the great creeds, with all the great dogmas, with all the great lights, with all the great candles, with all the great choirs, with all the great pomp and circumstances of a great religious experience. It'll be a great church with a great cathedral where you walk in, and the moment you walk in, the, the silence is so deafening that you want to speak in a low whisper because you're in the house of God. Yet the Bible tells us that God does not dwell in buildings made with hands. Amen. A building or a structure or an organization that appeals to the eye, to the flesh, that it's the, the, the very its very structure, its very beauty says God must be here. Well, but in closing, take your Bible and go to go to Proverbs chapter seven. Now, this church in Revelation chapter 17 and 18 is called Babylon Mystery Regret, the mother of harlots. This church in the Bible is likened to a, a woman of the evening in the 21st, 20th century, a hooker. But I want you to read down here because what you're reading in Proverbs chapter 7 verse 1 is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is, a great, is a great analogy of this. It shows you this woman at work. Again, Psalms, uh, Proverbs, Solomon speaking to his son, giving him words of wisdom about this woman. My son, Proverbs 7, 1, keep my words 
and lay up my commandments with thee. Keep thy commandments and live, and my law is the apple of thine eye. Bind them upon thy fingers. Write them upon the table of thine heart. Now that's hiding principles in your heart right there. You can't make that analogy. Say unto wisdom, she is my sister, and call understanding thy kinswoman. In other words, make the understanding of God part of your life, part of your family, as much as it is someone in relationship to you. That they, wisdom and understanding, may keep thee from the strange woman. Here it comes. From the stranger which flattereth with her words. For at a window of my house, I look through the casement. That's the window. Casement is what holds the window in. And behold, among the simple ones, I discerned among the youth, a young man void of understanding. Now here's a man who does not have understanding, doesn't have any wisdom. He's just simple-minded. Passing through the street near her corner, and he went away to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. Now, I don't have time to get into it this morning, but you have know, been around a while, you know that anytime you find the night, it's always a picture of the church age. We're talking about a religious system here who's likened to a whore that's operating around young men who are void of understanding and wisdom. Let's see what happens here. And behold, there met him a woman with the attire, a garment, my, 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 of a harlot and subtle of heart. She is loud and stubborn, her feet abide not in her own house. Now she, uh, now is she without, and now in the streets, and lieth in wait at every corner. So she caught him and kissed him with an imprudent face and said unto him, Oh, watch this. Got to love this gal. I have, I, I have peace offerings with me. This day have I paid my vows. Oh, what's a religious hooker? What more could you ask for? Therefore came I forth to meet thee, diligently to seek thy face, and I have found thee. I have decked my bed with coverings of tapestry, with carved works and fine linen of Egypt, type of the world. I have perfumed my bed with mirth, aloes, and seminum. Let come, let us take our fill of love until the morning, second coming of Christ, and let us solace ourselves with loves. For the goodman, the Lord Jesus Christ, is not at home. He's gone a long journey. Church age. You know what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 17, verse 2, about this religious church that's a whore, mother of harlots, Babylon mystery religion? She says the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. There it is right there. There it is right there. Verse 21, with her mouth fair speech, she caused him to yield. With flattering of her lips, she forced him. He goeth after her straightway as an ox goeth to the slaughter or a fool to the correction of the stocks till a dart strike through his heart as a bird hasteneth to the snare and knoweth not that it is for his life. Comely proportion. Dressed up, perfumed up, painted up, smelled up, all religious. There's a way that seemeth right unto men, but their end thereof are the ways of death. In the Dark Ages, they had a form of punishment called the Iron Maiden. And the Iron Maiden was a long casket-looking thing, but on the front of it was the image of the Virgin Mary. It was used by the Catholics to, to kill Christians and torture them and all of those things. 
When he opened the Iron Maiden up, it was carved out where a person could lay down in it. And on the bottom of it where they laid down, on the side it closed was real ominous spikes protruding out for all the sensitive parts of a person's body. Now when they put that person down in there and then they slowly closed that lid, all of those spikes went in and purposely uh, in time uh, impaled that person, killed that person, and then they were dead. That Iron Maiden concept was built after the concept of Rep. Proverbs chapter 7. She's the Iron Maiden. She's the Iron Maiden. She's a religious Babylon mystery religion, the mother of harlots. All religions come from her. You see, there's nothing like a Bible to reveal the trick and the plan of the devil to destroy the church. And this is what Paul's talking about in this great chapter. This is what we're going to see. We've come through some great practical chapters. We've come through stuff that no matter where you're at in your Christian life, you take it and apply it. Brother, not only am I giving it to you to help other people, but how many times have I told you it has to start with you first and changing who you are. But now we've come to one where before we get to the end of this book, he says, look, I'm worried about you, church at Corinth. You've come a long way. Boy, you've done some great turnaround stuff. But I'm telling you, I'm worried. And I'm worried over you just as, as the devil beguiled Eve that the devil's going to come in and he's going to beguile you from the simplicity that's in Christ. He's going to take this thing and he's going to turn it completely around. He's going to take from you what God has given you. And that's a worthy concern because that's exactly now that we know what the devil has done. And this is why the devil, devil so desperately has to get rid of one book. From 1900 to 2013, over 800 new Bibles with all one intention. That is replace this book right here. Because the devil has to get rid of this. Because without this, he has free reign. There's no rules. You can't discern the face of his garment. You can't, you, he, he, now he can conceal his parts, his powers, comely proportion. So he hates this book. And he hates anybody that believes this book. And his whole life and the whole world and all of church history has been around to do that. All of them. All of them will mask and hide the face of his garments and take from ability from you to discern his parts, his powers, come in proportion. This is the parts. This is, excuse me, this is Paul's concern for the church at Corinth. And this will be totally... Uh, as, it was, as it was all down through history, the simple the greatest concept of the church. And that's why in chapter 11, he takes time and he starts to talk about the wisdom of the ministry. If you don't get this down, if you don't understand, the only thing that you and I have that sets us apart from every other pagan religion on this planet is you got a book that you can bet your soul on. You got a book that everything in it is exactly from God, the way God wanted it to be, preserved and inspired and given to you. You lose that book, you have lost everything because there's no truth now. There's no wisdom. And on the next week, as we start to come through this great chapter, you'll see. You'll see even in greater depth. But this had to be a foundation. Without this, the rest of it wouldn't make any sense. Now we got a good foundation, a good introduction to chapter 11. And we'll get into all of that next week when we start coming through that great chapter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus.